Welcome to another edition of Inside the War Room. Ryan Ray here as always. And today I have on a gentleman who has a book out that um, I, I didn't tell you this. I guess I should tell you now. This book was recommended to me by, um, we'll just say, a high, I'll tell you offline because I don't want to get in trouble, a high-ranking or relatively high-ranking U.S. official on my trip to China last fall. They said, you need to, not to me, but to the people I was with, you need to go read this book. Um, and so... I came home and I didn't read it, but I listened to the book. I like listening to books. So I, I listened to it on Audible. And the book is China's Great Wall of Debt, Shadow Banks, Go Cities, Massive Loans, and the End of the Chinese Miracle. And the author is Denny McMahon, who is, um, let's see here. I think you said you are the world's foremost authority on all things China, especially the financial <laughs> markets, right? <laughs> yeah, don't do that to me, Ryan. <laughs> What, 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 what do they say? The more time you, you spend studying China, the more you realize you don't know. Yeah, so, uh, like yep, yeah yep. certainly wary of calling myself an expert, but just <laughs> someone who spent a lot of time there just trying to understand what was going on. Okay, so when I got into the book, um, as I said, I, I, I was told that and just went and got the book and, and listened to it, and it was, it was wonderful. But um, so I went in to kind of, I went into the book um, being told this is a good, uh, from a, a kind of authority figure, this is a good book to, to read. Um, but for the listeners, they might say, well, who, who are you? And kind of give us a little bit of a background and why, why'd you write the book? And, you know, what, what's your experience? You don't sound like you're from China. Maybe you are, but you don't sound, you don't sound like you're from China. So kind of what was the, uh, what's the genesis of your story with the book and uh, if you're interested in writing it? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I, my professional career uh, in China started in 2005 when I started working as a journalist, a newswire journalist with Dow Jones in Shanghai. Um, and I was there for four years, and then I moved across to the Wall Street Journal in Beijing, and I was there for another six years. Um, and over that period, I was covering China's financial markets. So in Shanghai, I, I started off focusing mainly on, on, on the currency and financial markets. And then I moved to Beijing, and I was the banking correspondent. Um, and the moment that I moved to Beijing kind of broadly coincided uh, with sort of the, you know, the sort of the, the nascent emergence of China's shadow banking system. Um, and, and so it, it was a time that the, the way China's financial system operated really started to change. And so um, over that period, I mean, the, the journal gave me a long leash to, to kind of focus on the stories that I thought were important and relevant. And when I left the paper in mid-2015, I kind of, you know, I... I, I it was a great experience writing all these stories, but I kind of realized that there was still all this material that was left in my notebooks that had never seen the light of day because these days you write for a newspaper, very seldom do you, do you get to write more than 1500 words in a piece. And every story is usually focused on a very discrete issue. You don't get to really explore how the various stories you're writing kind of interrelate. And so for me, sitting down to write the book was in some ways a bit of a cathartic experience because it, it was a way to kind of take everything that I've been looking at from the previous decade, the way that China's financial system and economy more broadly had been an evolving, all the dysfunction that I'd seen in the system and yet its ability to kind of keep on keeping on throughout it all, throughout it all. I just kind of needed that time to sit back and just for my own sake as much as anything, understand what I'd witnessed. And so, yeah, in some ways, the, writing the book was very, uh, very much a cathartic experience, and, and that's kind of how it came about. 
So one of the things that I always tell people um, is I'm an unashamed free market capitalist, and I'm somewhere between the Chicago and Austrian school of thought on economics. But that being said, I do realize that the governments do not work under those same principles that we work. Like if I got to pay a, a, a debt on Friday, either I had the money, I borrowed the money, I cannot go print the money. Uh, well, if I can't, if I do, I get caught, I'm in trouble. Um, and so when you look at kind of how governments operate, look at our government right now, they've been printing massive, or I say printing in air quotes, massive amount, amount, amounts of money. Um, and so it feels like that for the common person, when you look at what our Fed does, or we're going to talk about obviously China's um, is, is the focus here, um, it's really hard for us to kind of comprehend the world in which these large central bank institutes operate. And it's really, it gets really confusing because we just as normal citizens don't have the luxury of printing money. We just, you know, or we don't, we don't have that kind of, um, so, you know, when you think about, it's just kind of hard enough to understand the Fed and what the Fed's role is in the U.S. Break down for us China's system and what's different, what's similar, you know, um, obviously it's, um, there's a, you wrote a whole book about it. So, uh, uh, but yeah, at a high level kind of help us understand um, how to think of how the Chinese system works compared to how ours work and then what, 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 what is similar and what is different from um, kind of their banking standards. Okay, there's a lot of different ways I can take that question, but let's let's focus on the money issue. Um, so, yeah, in the wake of the global financial crisis, I, I forget what sort of period we're talking about. I'd say it's about eight years, sort of the eight, eight years after 2008, when all the developed economies, their central banks were printing money hand over fist. I mean, you know, the Federal Reserve, the ECB, uh, the Bank of Japan um, created just mountains of new money in order to keep uh, the economy and the financial system rolling. Now, what's generally overlooked is that over that same period in China, that China created more money than those three central banks combined over the same period, right? So there was a massive, absolutely gargantuan expansion in China's money supply in the immediate wake of the global financial crisis. However, there's a key difference here, and it's that in China, the way that money was being created was not at the hands of the central bank. It was the way that money is typically created in any financial system, and that's not by the central bank, but it's by the commercial banks. And so, you know, generally speaking, in any free market economy, that's how new money gets created. You know, a bank uh, makes a loan, and that ends up as a new deposit, and it's by the actual process of a bank issuing a loan that you get uh, you, you, you get uh, the creation of new money. And what happened in China is that because of the relationship between the banks and the government, the government could say to the banks, all right, we need to stimulate the economy. We're not going to do it using the central bank's balance sheet. We're not going to ramp up our own debt and we're not going to get the central bank to print money. We're going to, you, the commercial banks, are going to have to lend more. And that's what happened in the wake of the global financial crisis. China's nominally commercial banks, uh, most of which are state-owned, massively ramped up their lending. And what that resulted in was an absolutely gargantuan expansion in, 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 the, in the money supply. Now, the really interesting thing here is that, you know, the government was aware of what was happening and was aware of the risks that entailed. And so time and time again, tried to rein in the bank's behavior. And this is something that's not widely understood outside of China. 
that there is this sense that, okay, because it is a communist system, that the government effectively controls all aspects of society and the economy that it, that it wants to. And clearly the banks are part of that. But what we saw following 2008 in China is that originally the government gives the banks the green light to, to drive the stimulus, to lend as much money as possible, money that mainly went to property developers, went to local governments, went to state-owned industrial firms. But after a year, the government said, okay, right, that's enough stimulus. We've got the economy back on track. We're starting to worry about just how much the banks are lending. It's time to rein it in. And what happened then is you had this sort of nascent emergence of shadow banking. And shadow banking in this context is best understood as the the evolution or the emergence of non-bank financial institutions that were cooperating with the banks in order to maintain the pace of overall credit growth just in a way that was outside of the government's regulatory framework. So you have this situation where Beijing was saying one thing. It was saying, okay, we've had enough stimulus, banks, do what we say, less lending. And the banks effectively conspired with non-bank financial institutions to effectively ignore that and lend more and more and more. And that was effectively the tale of the eight years following the global financial crisis. You had a massive expansion in, in, in credit and a massive expansion in money, but that expansion was radically different from anything that was happening in the developed economies because it was the commercial banks that were doing it. And so the result is that you ended up with you know, these uh, high-speed, you know, rail lines around the country and you had, uh, you know, huge forests of new apartment buildings and you had this massive expansion in industrial capacity. The stuff that in, in the US and other developed countries, you'd look and like, well, if only we could be like the Chinese. Look how they've mobilised the resources and they've built all this stuff. Now, the fallout, which the Chinese are now dealing with today, is that, yeah, they managed to build all this stuff, but they spent way too much on it. A lot of it they don't need. And so today, the legacy are these mountains of non-performing loans that they're slowly trying to work their way through. So that is perhaps one of the, the biggest differences, the way that the government stimulates um, and the, the sort of the, the levers of control uh, are somewhat different, but it's not that you know, that these, that, that, that it is without consequence. And China is very much dealing with the consequence of these sort of, these boom wild west years. Uh, they're very much dealing with the consequences of that today. Okay, so let me let me ask this, and maybe just to make sure I'm following along here. Um, on, on some level, it sounds like um, the commercial aspect that you described would be, and we're kind of flattening things out just for the sake of argument, very similar to our housing crisis where we loosened the standards and we, 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 we created a bunch of loans for, uh, for housing people, uh, housing in the U S and next, next thing you know, we have a bunch of people who could afford the loans and there's problems with that. Um, so we had kind of a bad guidelines. Of course we can argue over, you know, what incentivize that, but we, we really kind of, um, gave loans to people who couldn't pay them back. Right. Um, that kind of sounds again, flattening out similar to what China did. And then when the government stepped in China, if I understand what you're saying is instead of, kind of responding um, and maybe tightening up guidelines or whatever, they, they kind of went a different direction, which then compounded the problem more. Is that kind of a, um, it, whereas right now in the U.S., what we're seeing is, is the federal government's just, uh, the Federal Reserve is just printing money. So is that kind of a, by kind of hitting the high points there more or less? Yeah, it's not a, it's not a bad way of, or it, it's not a bad analogy. Um, I think if, if there was a difference though, 
it was that the ramping up in lending in China and this sort of reduction in, in lending standards whereby the banks were more willing to just lend to, you know, to, to, to anyone. Um, the motivation behind that was explicitly about stimulating the economy. Yeah. Whereas in the United yeah. States, there were all sorts of other political reasons for, right. for why the standards. But the basic mechanics and the fallout aren't really that dissimilar. Okay. Okay. Good. 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 Um, and now, one of the things that you you touched on there, um, and again, as you say, uh, you could spend a lot of time on this stuff and realize how little you understand about it. Um, but you said, well, okay, there's the Chinese government, and then there's the private banks. One of the things that I've done, or I've tried to do, when I talk to people about um, U.S.-China relations and you know, people on the ground, and you know, you get the, um, I try to be very careful. Um, and I, I'm not perfect, obviously, but I try to be careful about my, my writing, my speaking, about distinguishing the Chinese government versus a Chinese national or Chinese citizen um, or a Chinese business. Uh, because um, it seems often in America, we just kind of say China, China this, China that. And you did a, a, a good job of distinguishing the government versus the banking system. Um, can you maybe flesh that a little bit more just practically? What kind of influence? Obviously, there were some problems from what you described, but but how does the because when we think of communism in the United States, we think there's somebody up top, and whatever he says is how it goes. Um, that's not how it act. That's not how communism actually works. It's it's how it's supposed to work, maybe. But that's <laughs> there's corruption and there's all these you know, factions and stuff. So that's not how it works. So maybe obviously you could spend hours just kind of breaking that down. But maybe just at a high level, how should or how does it really work, and how much authority? Um, is Beijing really have, and is there a lot of battles that go on and stuff like that, or is it a little bit more top down than we think? Um, that tees it up for us. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, so th there's a particular idiom in Chinese that, for me, has always uh, sort of summed up this sort of dynamic between the, the, the higher levels of government and the lower levels of government. And you know, the, the expression in Chinese is "shang you zheng si, xia you dui si," which broadly translates as "above there is policy." And below, there is a way in which we implement policy. <laughs> and so the idea, <laughs> right. Right. the idea is that, like, you know, the, you know, the policy emerges at a higher level of government, and they have their intentions. They, there, there is a, a a spirit in which the policy is designed, and then it has to be implemented, and it gets implemented at lower levels of government. And lower levels of government have their own agendas. Um, and that's for a whole lot of different reasons. And sometimes that reason is straight up corruption or it's patronage networks that it gets implemented in ways that allow the local mayors to continue maximizing their access to wealth and their ability to distribute wealth. But sometimes one of the problems here is that uh, the lower levels of government are sort of trapped between a rock and a hard place because they're getting competing uh, regulations or complete competing messages from higher levels of government. And so they kind of have to find a way to balance out those priorities at, at a local level. And sometimes those contradictions are, are deliberate. I mean, one of the reasons that China's economic growth model was so successful, particularly in the 1980s and 1990s, is that local officials were given a lot of discretion to be able to come up with new ways or unique ways to drive economic growth which took advantage of their local circumstances so you know baked into the system is a recognition that you know giving the local you know local officials a bit of discretion is, isn't such a bad thing because ultimately it's going to result in innovation in the way to 
manage the economy and, and, you know, and, and manage firms and whatnot. Um, now, of course, all of this is further complicated by political cycles. So just because today, or just because five years ago, for example, local officials felt like they had a sufficient discretion to perhaps uh, ignore certain regulations or perhaps try and innovate their way around certain regulations, which is what I was, the dynamic I was describing before with the evolution of shadow banking. Today, the ability to, uh, to behave in such a way, there's just not as much latitude. So I, I think one of the biggest changes to have occurred in China's political economy over the last few years is I think probably late 2016, early 2017, the, the effects of Xi Jinping's anti-corruption campaign, which he started to implement uh, effectively the moment that he took over the, took over the presidency, um, the, the sort of the cumulative effect of that really started to bite in about 2017, such that uh, lower level officials were less willing to innovate around the rules, are less willing to exercise discretion when they were being asked to do something. Or perhaps the, the other way, the best way to put it is that previously, if you were taking something like the banking system, for example, officials would hew to the letter of the law and letter the regulations as they were passed down, but they would flagrantly violate the spirit of what was being asked. And so this is where you had, again, the evolution of the, the shadow banking system. But today, the, the actual letter of the regulation is less important. What is more important is everybody is worried about violating the spirit of what is being asked of them by the central government of Xi Jinping in, in particular. And so these days, the, the scope for lower level officials to not be seeing, the, the risk of them not to be seen as doing exactly what the central government is asking, that risk is significantly higher. And so the sort of the Wild West sort of behavior that we saw maybe five years ago is, is much less evident. Okay. So let me ask you this. One of the things um, that I'm curious your perspective on. Um, and this is kind of a, a broader China question in general. You're, you're talking about some of the, the changes that you've seen, or, uh, even from the time that you're there, up now that you read about. Um, you know, right now in, in, in the U.S., there's at least a debate over is China being more communist or are they, um, you know, loosening things up? And by all accounts, I'm not trying to diminish what's going on in Hong Kong or um, some of those that's going on in China. So I'm not trying to make light of that. Um, but I, I've often wondered. If you read, and you can't read all the China news, but if you kind of read through the China news, there's a lot of things in there that get, that might give indication that what China is doing now with crackdowns, um, and, and I feel like it feels there's, it seems like they kind of talk out both sides of their neck sometimes, but, but um, that there's actually maybe more optimism about where China will be 10 to 15 years from now uh, than where they are today. Um, and so you talk about this wild west, they kind of had this, they tried to, they, they, did, they did this, it didn't work out well, they're kind of rolling things, that they kind of try to rein things in and prevent it from happening again. But then you have a story like Amex, which I haven't followed up, I don't know if, you, if you've followed that story. Uh, I know they were going to go over to China, I know the COVID thing kind of pushed it back, I don't know what the current status of that is. There, there's kind of things like that, it's like, okay, yes, they are tightening down on security, yes, we're, we don't want that to happen, I'm not making light of that, but there's also these other things that seem to be cracks in the foundation that make me wonder if the if the the the, the Chinese Communist Party 
um, is maybe a little bit more concerned about where the country is going, you know, uh, pro-freedom, we'll just kind of throw that label out there, or pro-democracy, or, you know, less communist, whatever. Um, and so they're trying to stop that, but we look at it from the West and go, oh my gosh, they're getting worse. Um, can you, do you have any thoughts on that, or how do you view it? You might disagree, which is fine. I'm curious your kind of take on that, because to me, it's like, hmm, okay. It seems that there's actually more cracks in the foundation here that they're trying to repair um, than there is, they're actually tightening down. So I don't okay. Yeah, let's take a let's talk about the Amex example because it's it's certainly a very interesting one. I, I don't see what's happening with the with Amex in the same way that I think that you are. I don't see this as an example of liberalization or an effort to China to open up or even an effort to by China to kind of you know allow foreign competition in order to be able to redress some of its own internal problems. The issue with Amex has been a long-standing one for at least 20, you could probably even say 30 years. Um, America's electronic payments companies, the card companies, have been trying to get into China's market for a a very, very long time. I mean, Visa in particular has very much been at the vanguard of trying to access China's China's, um, payment system. I think it was in the 90s that it was involved in cooperating with the People's Bank of China to help them set up a standard for electronic payments and, and credit cards. Um, Visa, again, in particular, was a major sponsor of the 2008 Beijing Olympics. It's done a lot to try and prove that it's, it's a good corporate citizen, all the while not being allowed any access to China's market. Now, what happened is when China joined the World Trade Organization in 2001, one of the conditions of its entry into the WTO is that it would open its electronic payments market to foreign competition. Now, I think there was a grace period. I, I could get the actual details, but there was an expectation, there was kind of a baked into the agreement. There was this understanding that after a few years, uh, Visa, Discover, Amex, MasterCard, they would all be allowed not only into China to process foreign currency transactions, but would be allowed to process uh, UN-denominated transactions. And the thing is, it never happened. And MasterCard and Amex and Visa, they they waited and they bided their time and they did things like sponsor the Olympics to show that they were good uh, corporate citizens in the Chinese context. And the market just never opened, despite of the WTO agreement. Um, And finally, the USTR brought a case against China to the WTO saying, hang on, this, this, is, this is very clear in China's WTO accession agreement that this market is supposed to open up. Now, my understanding is that the, the card companies, they held off for years from asking the USTR to do it, partly because they thought, okay, we'll, we'll give it time. We'll, you know, China will come around eventually. And then after time, there was like, well, you know, the problem is if we're seen trying to ram down the front door, China has a long history of punishing foreign firms that it, uh, that it doesn't see as playing by their, their rules. And so if we decide to go to the USTR uh, WTO tribunal approach, then it might backfire in our face. My understanding is that the reason that when the USTR finally uh, did bring a case. It was, I think it was, it may have been Visa had, had it just kind of had enough. It had invested too much, it, too much time and too much effort and didn't think anything was going to come of it. 
And so there was a USTR case, I think it was in 2000 and, uh, 2013, and the WTO found in favour of the United States and told China to open its market. And China didn't. It, it effectively ignored that decision for years and years and years. And the fact that in 2020, uh, China is about to let American Express into the market, despite the fact that an agreement from 20 years ago said that China would do it as part and parcel to its world WTO accession, is an indication of, of cracks in the system. What it's an indication of is that China is sufficiently secure and sufficiently comfortable um, in its dominance in the dominance of local Chinese firms of its own domestic electronic payments market, that it can afford to throw a bone to foreign competitors and not worry about losing either market dominance or all the profits that accrue from that sort of business. And so you've seen over the past 20 years that China's version of Visa and Amex um, and MasterCard, a company called China Union Pay, has become the national behemoth. It's almost unthinkable that another card company would be able to meaningfully be able to take market share away from it. On top of that, particularly when you, tra when you travel the world these days, particularly in places like Southeast Asia, you see the China Union Pay symbol everywhere next to Visa and, uh, you know, Visa and, and MasterCard. Even the United States, certainly in Australia where I'm from, it's, it's ubiquitous as well. And then on top of that, China's electronic payment system has evolved in a lot of ways far faster than, you, than the United States. And so you've got these um, online tech behemoths, these tech behemoths like Alibaba and Tencent, which have themselves carved out a huge share of the um, electronic payment system, you know, in a way that there really isn't a foreign competitor that you would imagine would be able to come into the Chinese market and, and sort of give them a run for, for their money. So the, the point is that today, China can afford to allow foreign competition into the market in this space and not have to worry about that competitor ever being anything more than a bit player. So I don't necessarily see this as a, you know, as a, as a sign of Chinese weakness. I think as much as anything, this is a, a sign of Chinese strength. Okay. First off, very fascinating. Um, and it, um, obviously you are the financial guru. So thank you for just kind of the, 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 the detailed history there. Um, let me rephrase when I say cracks in the foundation. Um, just so it, it may not change your opinion at all, but, um, when I think of, you know, um, Kind of countries on, on on a spectrum. You've got North Korea, which is probably the the worst, or you know, top two, three country in in the world. Um, and you know how they contain their people is through isolate, like strict isolationism. You know, they they're doing very few deals with very few people. And it's very limited, and they understand that the more their people get outside, the less control they have. Um, and so, uh, when I'm evaluating whether it's um, you know like Saudi Arabia, some of the stuff that they're, they're doing, or China. It seems that the MX thing um, coming in, and maybe they can't make a significant foothold. I will definitely uh, defer to your opinion on that. Um, but those type of things make me wonder: it, Are they more concerned that hey, we are eventually going to lose grip of this power? I mean, what politician doesn't want to have power? <laughs> so um, are they are they concerned about that? And so those, that would be when I say crack. Not necessarily that MX is going to come in and dominate the market, but. The, you know, they have the, what, 400 million middle class. They have to keep those people 
at least middle class status. You want to bring in more. Um, that's kind of that balance they have to face. And um, it, 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 and so from my perspective, the media at large um, in the U.S. is very much, you know, China's going to be very resilient moving forward. And I'm not entirely sure, depending on what happens with, with the EU and stuff in the next few months, um, you know, what their short-term capacity is. But I just have wondered, um, you know, as they've let in outsiders into their economy, yeah, they've done a lot of things as you described there. But also there is a sense in which as they, as they have opened things up that you can't undo what you did, if you will. And so I, that's, that, that would be kind of the, the, not necessarily a market share dynamic, um, but just the, the willingness to continue to do that because they could have, I guess, theoretically fought um, you know, the Amex stuff, you know, and you know, made people mad. They, it wouldn't be the first time they made people mad. So uh, that, that would be kind of more what I'm saying. Cracks. That would be how I'd want to okay. tease it out. It may, it may not change your perspective at all, but just so you understand what I was, what I was saying. Yeah, yeah, I, I get what you're saying. I, I think when it comes to China's opening up, it's not an all or nothing sort of thing. So we, we often think of China as being, you know, and there's, and there's reason for this. We, we often think of China as being on a either a opening or a contracting sort of footing. And if you look at, say, the 1980s and the 1990s in particular, even the early 2000s, it was very clear that what was going on was, was opening. And, you know, even the Chinese had a, an expression for it. It was, you know, it was reform and opening. It, it was that, you know, China needed to open in order to initially at least to be able to get you know, uh, you know, foreign investment, foreign technology, mm -hmm. um, access to foreign markets, foreign exchange. It, it, part and parcel of China's growth required a certain amount of opening. And the more that they developed, the more opening that was required. Now, I think where we are at the moment is in a very different position. So unquestionably, there are aspects of opening that are still going on in the Chinese economy. And to that extent, the Amex example is, is one of them. And you see it elsewhere in the financial system as well. You're seeing, you know, Vanguard and Fidelity are coming in and hoping to set up their own freestanding, wholly owned fund management companies. Um, China is now allowing securities brokerages, the foreign mm. investment banks like you know, Gold, Goldman, you know, Morgan Stanley, mm. um, to sort of come in and, and set up their own majority controlled securities companies and so you're seeing this uh you know and they've got rid of uh the quotas on foreign money from coming in from overseas to invest in the domestic stock market so you're seeing these incremental liberalization measures in the financial system mm. um, at the same time you are seeing uh you know that the government is enthusiastic about trying to encourage more foreign direct investment largely part and parcel i think because they are worried about sort of a, a global backlash against china mm -hmm. and so they want to kind of offset that by sort of saying hey we're going to make it easier for foreign investment to come in and yet at the same time you see things like okay we are going to set up massive investment funds to allow chinese companies to go overseas and acquire the technology that we need and want um, we will provide uh, large subsidies for domestic companies that uh, move into certain industries. We will have uh, lists of preferred buyers that um, our uh, sort of you know, companies in, in strategic industries like electric vehicles are uh, supposed to buy key components from, and they may or they may not be foreign companies on that list. 
And so at the moment, we're in an environment where you, you can, that we're not in an opening phase, mm-hmm. but to say that is a, an increasingly protectionist or closed off phase doesn't necessarily capture the extent of everything that's going on. Now, I think from US strategic perspective at the moment, the real concern is in those areas where uh, the role of the state in China is increasingly large um, because that directly affects, you know, sort of uh, security issues um, that relate to um, industries of high technological value. But at the same time, you are seeing this this um, this incremental opening up of the financial sector, which seems to be as much as anything to be about uh, you know the the trade surplus that China has had for for years and years, which has seen this constant inflow of dollars. That surplus is not what it used to be. It's 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 no longer the sort of structural permanent surplus that it used to be. And so to ensure that there are still dollars coming into the economy, there is this move towards liberalizing the financial account. So I think that's what's going on there. But yeah, to kind of, you know, on a very macro level to say that China is opening or it's closing that we're in one phase or the other at the moment, it's it's a little bit more nuanced than it has been in previous periods of development. Yes, no, I I definitely agree with that. And that is part of my point is, like I said, if you read the news and you try to read all the news, you realize that there's stories that that kind of conflict. It's like, well, okay, they're doing this here, they're doing this there, and why are they doing this? And there's a a quote that uh, I think think it's from Hemingway, and it goes, um, you know, how did you go bankrupt? It goes two ways, gradually and suddenly. And you look at (laughs) geopolitical stuff, that's kind of how things happen is that you're, you know, today we're right here, we're looking at, you know, the Hong Kong protests and the security laws that passed or whatever it is in the U.S. or wherever the story is. Well, those stories are sudden now, but there was a gradual buildup and um, it's hard to kind of follow the monotony of the gradual stuff because it can be confusing or, and then one day something happens. You're like, oh, wow, I didn't see that coming. And it's like, well, well maybe it was easy to predict. Maybe, maybe it wasn't, but um, um, it did, we, it's, it's, it's kind of hard to kind of keep your finger on the pulse because you say that they are doing stuff. And you mentioned the forward investment stuff. And that's kind of, I'm glad you brought that up because how I got involved with um, China issues was through my connections with Africa. And obviously the Belt and Road Initiative is, um, you know, a big part of, of uh, what China is doing and wanting to do. And depending on, um, you know, where you are, or what side of that coin you're on, depends on your, your thoughts on it. So maybe break down your, you know, um, the Belt and Road Initiative kind of from your perspective, uh, the good, the bad, the ugly, any other comments you make, and we'll kind of delve into it and ask you some questions about, um, about, about, um, what, where I think there might be some vulnerabilities, but I want to hear your opinion on it for sure. Yeah, no, of course. The, the Belt and Road is an interesting thing because in some ways it's a bit of a moving target, right? Um, I think in some ways everybody projects onto the Belt and Road what they want it to be or what they think it to be in, in some ways based on their, their fears or, or hopes for, for China. So in some ways, the Belt and Road existed even before Xi Jinping came up with the idea in 2013, because even prior to that, Chinese firms had already been investing massive amounts of money to build infrastructure in the developing world. Um, And then Xi Jinping came along and kind of put a name to it, and it kind of became this this overall grand encompassing vision of of China's um, foreign policy. And the scope of what that was 
expanded very, very quickly, well beyond what Xi Jinping originally kind of framed it as, because he was talking it, uh, talking about it as being sort of this, you know, maritime road, uh, mar- uh, maritime road and, and overland road, pretty much mimicking the old Silk Road trade route. And then as lower levels officials went around sort of signing up countries to, to the you know, Belt and Road Initiative, uh, you ended up with countries all over the world that had nothing to do with the original Silk Road from like a millennium ago being signed up to this thing. I mean, countries that didn't even exist back then, such as Australia, uh, were getting pressure by you know, right. foreign Chinese officials to sign, to sign up to these things. And it became a really, in Australia at least, became this really quite... Yeah, divisive, um, you know, political hot potato. Is this something we should be signing up to or not? So the, I, I think when, when it comes to understanding and even thinking about Belt and the Belt and Road Initiative, what we need to keep in mind is that it is a, a moving target, is that it is sufficiently flexible to kind of change and morph to reflect whatever China's uh, foreign policy or political needs are at any given t- any given time, mm-hmm. and so certainly in its early manifestation, this was a, seemed to be about throwing a whole lot of money and particularly debt um, at having Chinese firms build infrastructure in places around the world, and to a certain extent that was a, a wonderful thing because you know particularly in the developing world, particularly in Asia, there is a massive overwhelming demand for new infrastructure and the money just is not there to get it done. And for the Chinese to step into the gap and say, okay, we, we don't do soft power the way that the Americans do or sort of many other countries do. What we have to offer the world is um, an ability to put up the cash that no one else is willing to, to put up and build things quickly, which is effectively what we've been doing in China for the last 30 years. We will bring that side of our development model to you and we'll be able to you know, do it because no one else can do it. And that was an incredibly appealing prospect because this stuff wasn't going to get built, you know, anywhere, um, you know, without it. Now, of course, there's been problems with that because there's been instances of corruption and China meddling in, you know, in in domestic politics. And there's been issues of China building stuff that has, you know, significance to, you know, the ruling party of of, of 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 a country that it's investing in which ends up in the country acquiring a whole lot of debt and, and a whole lot of uh, you know, physical infrastructure that they don't necessarily need. So there's a whole lot of problems with it. But at the same time, if we're kind of looking at this as a, as a Chinese strategy, over time, the strategy seems to be changing. And so even when it comes to the, the deployment of Chinese financial resources into this project, it's becoming less clear that there is as much money as they used to, as there used to be, and even where that money's coming from. And what I mean by that, for example, is that initially China Development Bank, which is one of China's single biggest, largest policy bank, was the tip of the spear when it came to funding Belt and Road Initiative projects. Um, it was the one who, I think it was even before Xi Jinping was president, he traveled, the, the chairman of the China Development Bank, used to travel, travel with the previous president of China and then in the first couple of years would travel with Xi Jinping as well. And these, you know, the US, the Chinese leader would turn up to the developing countries, would make some you know, fantastic statements about friendship, and then the chairman of China Development Bank would open the checkbook. 
But the really interesting thing is that the foreign currency loans of China Development Bank peaked in 2016, and they have been declining since then. And so it seems that the the financial resources being directed by the Chinese state aren't what they used to be. This is not necessarily something that is getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And even rhetorically, the focus of BRI, the way that the Chinese government talks about it's very different as well. There's a lot less talk seemingly of like of uh, coal-fired power, power plants and, and, and you know, six-lane highways, but there's a lot of talk of sort of a digital Silk Road and having Chinese private companies like Alibaba going throughout Africa and setting up cloud computing facilities. Um, it's about China itself not going overseas and building infrastructure for other countries, but building its own network of submarine cables, uh, thereby building the sort of the networks that, uh, allow countries to remain uh, to to be connected by communications networks that China owns. You see something very similar with the with the satellite network, um, Beidou, which I think as of last week or two weeks ago now uh, has a, a significantly larger network of of satellites. Uh, which uh, sort of supporting China's equivalent of a GPS system, more so more satellites than the uh, than the US system. And again, this was something that was being built before Belt and Road Initiative was announced, but is now part of this idea of a digital Silk Road because it's China owning the global financial infrastructure that is necessary for the rest of the world to remain, uh, you know, linked by communications. But my understanding is that this is a, a cheaper system for the developing world than, say, the, the, the US GPS system is. And so what we're seeing is this evolution of what BRI actually means. And I think that is going to set the tone for what BRI will be in the future. It is going to be this constantly changing thing which suits the needs of the Chinese uh, government uh, as those needs change. And the financial resources... Uh, both in terms of the volume and the post, the way that they are deployed is going to also change based on partly China's own financial constraints and also partly based on on its changing political needs. You know, it, just, just as an aside, when I was in China last year, they said, uh, I was talking about all the buildings and stuff, and they're like, well, you know, we have a saying in China, Demo uh, democracy does not equal efficiency or something like that. <laughs> I can't remember it's, it's the exact <laughs> wording, but um, it, it, the point was is that at, you know, high level, they can do all these things you're talking about. Whereas uh, in the U.S., we'd have committee meetings and Congress and Supreme Court fights and and this, that, and the other. So it gives them the ability to be more nimble on some level if they want to. Um, the, 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 the the Belt Road stuff, kind of going back to maybe the the pre-technology era, just to kind of distinguish a little bit. You know, coming from working with with uh, uh, folks over in Africa, there was there there's some heartburn. We actually had on a guest. Uh, on the show a few weeks ago who kind of uh, is from Colombia, talked about some of the, the stuff over there um, and, and kind of how the Chinese kind of came into various countries in Africa. And of course, listen, this isn't all of Africa. Africa's a big place, a lot of diverse opinions. Some people love the Chinese, so I'm not trying to make a universal statement here, but there was some heartburn over kind of how it went out. And, and I wondered, mm. um, you know, would China find themselves, this is pre-COVID, would China find themselves in a spot to where, you know, in uh, in Africa, the, the the emerging markets in Africa, there's a frustration where they, f uh, it seems like uh, kind of a universal statement is, um, you know, people have come in, uh, they've promised a lot, 
And what happens is they end up making all the money and then the Africans of uh, the local country are kind of left poor and then they leave a lot of money. And that could be uh, Europeans, it could be Americans, it could be the Chinese. It kind of feels like that's kind of a, a running feeling there that, that, that they kind of get taken advantage of um, because their government, the corruption at the government level. So I, I wondered, you know, could China find themselves in a spot um, where, you know, some of these African nations are like, you know, listen, we, we, we're just not going to pay this money back. This is stupid. We're mad. Bad deal. WTO courts or whatever we can, you know, we can go down that path, but, but, but just kind of really put the pressure on China. Um, and so I wasn't surprised um, when China announced was it two or three weeks ago, a month ago that they're going to pause or suspend the, the debt collection payments from, from a lot of these nations. Um, is that just from a standpoint, do they feel uh, for the monetary policy, is, is that a big burden for them to carry? Is it not? It's like, no, they can really kind of carry that burden. Is the threat of people not repaying them something that they lose sleep over or do they feel like, no, they, they're going to be able to collect other checks. Um, uh, just uh, what are your thoughts on uh, their ability to maybe uh, the, the technology stuff I think is, is uh, has some interesting potential, but there's also some concerns with what they're going to do with that technology. I know with the Huawei and the spying and you know, we can go, been a lot of time on that, but yeah, but just on the on the, yeah, on the infrastructure yeah. stuff, it feels like um, pre-COVID there was some frustration. Um, I know I've had some African ambassadors tell me directly that they they would prefer America to come, and I'm like, well, yeah, I'm, I'm sure you would, but the, <laughs> but our <laughs> roles and your roles both make that very difficult. There's a reason China's right. there, you know. Like, yeah, right. yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, no, I mean that, that sums it up quite well. There's there's a reason it's China that's there. Um, yeah, in terms of what all this means for China financially, it's a really difficult question to ask because answer because half the time it's not particularly clear. Like, there's, there's a couple of aspects to this. First, it's, it's not always that clear how China has funded some of this debt, right? Mm. Um, and then also um, sometimes the way that it works is that um, how do they how to put this so if you take venezuela for example mm. um you know china has lent a huge amount of money to, to venezuela was it 50 uh, I'm, I'm going to get the number wrong I think it's it was 50 billion dollars yeah. or something it was in- incredible um and some of that money just just completely disappeared it was the equivalent of digging a hole <laughs> shoveling the money <laughs> in and light, lighting a match you know right. uh, that, but from what i heard is that they never kind of china's never lost money that the Venezuelans haven't quite defaulted and I haven't managed to get a, a straight answer on why that's the case it could just be because they restructure the loan make it a longer maturity for as long as we keep kicking the can and everything will be fine but uh, uh, the way that China restructured a lot of these deals is that even if they don't think they're going to get cash back they structure it for um, for um, sort of commodities in lieu yes. So that's you kind of have, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's what I was saying. What, what Cristobal was saying was is that they're essentially in uh, South America, they're, they're taking out the resources as raw material, going to China and yeah. processing them, and then yeah. selling them back to you know South America or wherever. So they're really kind of getting the, the maximum benefit. So it could be that, they, that they're making a ton of money just on that alone. Well, yeah. So that's, that's certainly part of the equation. The other part of the equation is, and this is where uh, people get particularly sensitive is that there is some sort of, uh, you know, the, the Chinese take control of some sort of state asset. And so this was the big issue in uh, Sri Lanka where um, the Hammond Boda port 
Um, Sri Lanka couldn't repay its debts, and so the Hammond Boda port was handed over on a 99-year lease to a Chinese state-owned enterprise. Um, and there was a lot of up in arms about this um, because you know, a 99-year lease is, is, a, is a really long time. Right. Of course, the other side of the equation, though, is that the reason that the Sri Lankan government hadn't been able to pay off the debts is because the Hammond Boda port's a white elephant. Mm-hmm. Sri Lanka has other highly functioning ports. It doesn't actually need this one. Mm-hmm. So the the Chinese government has this asset, which they're now trying to, you know, have they make money out of it because it's, there's no real point in, in it existing in the first place. And of course, there's all this talk of, oh, will the Chinese use it as a, you know, as a naval base? Well, you know, that ultimately doesn't come with a 99-year lease. That comes with, <laughs> you know, the, the Sri Lankan government feeling right. as though it's in their own interests. And, you know, maybe they feel that, you know, that, that the Chinese have them over a barrel and they have no choice but to do it. But that's not really how the politics in these sorts of countries shake out. You take something like the Maldives as well. Um, where an opposition government came in, um, saw that there'd been uh, a lot of financial uh, jiggery-pokery or, 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 or shenanigans between the previous government and, and the Chinese and said, well, look, we're not going to repay these, these, these debts. And so I think they're still in this process of, of negotiating with China what the outcome is, but you still find that these small you know, countries, if they feel that the Chinese have done them wrong, they're not... You know, they're, they're not scared of sort of stepping up and saying, this cannot stand. The Chinese are not going to get their way because this is a, a violation of our own sovereignty, sovereignty and our own, own principles. So it, it is, you know, I mean, these sorts of situations are, are going to have to sort of, you know, sort themselves out on a case-by-case basis. But nobody likes to feel as though they're being taken advantage of, even if it is with, by the proverbial, you know, 800-bout gorilla. Um, so yeah, I think I'm, I'm, I'm sort of wandering a little bit no, off, off track keep, here. Keep, at the, the moment. It's great. Keep on going. I'm not going to stop. <laughs> but, but, uh, yeah, so you, you kind of, and so what you're saying about certain countries feeling that economically when the China, you know, when the Chinese come in, they're behaving in the same way as Americans and the Europeans did before them. Yeah. There's certainly an element to that. And certainly, you know, that, you know, as you see with Hammond Bosa, you saw it in the Maldives, you've seen it in, I think, Kenya as well, where there were some, concerns that uh, China Exim Bank, another one of the policy banks, would sort of take control of, a, I think it was either a port or a railway or something. These sorts of things don't happen quietly. They happen, um, you know, with a huge flare-up and, and a feeling by local nations that they need to defend their national sovereignty. And so it's not that the Chinese just get away with, it, with this stuff. In some ways, by structuring deals this way, it's more hassle than it's worth because it's just more hassle than it's worth because it it stores up a lot of ill will mm-hmm. against the Chinese, which is going to take a lot of time and political capital for the the Chinese to kind of you know unwind. Okay, I know we got about, I think about ten fifteen more minutes. I'm going to try to get through some uh, a couple. Uh, I'm going to ask you the easy ones now, so you can just kind of you know yes no. <laughs> um, so we'll start with the easiest one of all. Uh, the Cold War between the U.S. and China. Can China withstand that? <laughs> That's... Oh, God. Thanks, thanks, Ryan. I actually thought you were going to ask me an easy question. Uh, <laughs> right, so th- th- this is the way that I look at this. I think when we talk about a Cold War, 
you know, we all have the same frame of reference, which is the Cold right. War between the United States and the exactly. USSR. And that started off in a completely different place than any conceivable Cold War with China could. Because, you know, when the Cold War with the USSR started, there weren't really any uh, economic linkages or even people-to-people linkages between the two nations or the two economies. Mm. Whereas with China, it is completely different. If we wanted a Cold War, if we wanted a Cold War that looked like the one that we had with the Soviet Union, the starting point would have to be to fundamentally extricate the US US firms and the US economy from China. And that is going to happen to a certain extent, but certainly nowhere near to the level that we would have had with with the Soviet Union. I mean, it is happening at the moment with sort of things like tech and research and whatnot. Um, you know, over time, we're going to see uh, manufacturing leave China because it's just becoming a more expensive place to, 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 to manufacture. But even then, things will be complicated because it, that manufacturing doesn't necessarily come home to the United States, but it'll go to places like Sri Lanka and Bangladesh and Vietnam. Mm-hmm. And it's like, okay, so are these countries in China's sphere of interest or are they in the United States sphere right. of interest? Or are they effectively a, another world? Because like you take countries like Australia, we can't afford for there to be a cold war between China and the United States. We can't afford to be asked to take, take sides. And if we are, we won't. Because you know, as much as our security relationship is, is in, intimately tied with the United States, our last 30 years of uninterrupted prosperity is almost exclusively tied to China's economic, uh, you know, emergence. And so the, the complexity of not just China and the United States' relationship, but the, the sort of the, the thousand nodes of, you know, every other country and city um, and firms in all those other countries that sit between China and, and the United States and have their unique relationships with both of those both of those players is radically different from anything we we experienced during the Cold War with the Soviet Union, and it's just going to shake out in a completely different way. So that's kind of my starting point at the moment. I just don't know what a Cold War will look like with China. It's not to say there won't be one, but yeah. it's going to be something radically different from what we've experienced or what we understand that term to mean based on our own prior experience. Um, and so, yeah, that would be my uh, That's attempt to completely not, not answer your question <laughs> because I don't have a good answer. No, no, your answer is actually, <laughs> I think your answer is the right answer, which is, you know, the, 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 the rhetoric around U.S.-China relations, whether it's from the Chinese side, the U.S. side, or the media is, Hey, this is a black and white issue. We're going to pull out or we're going to do this. Like that, that's just not, listen, that's not 2020, maybe in, mm. you know, 1827. Okay. Something like that could have happened. But it's just not <laughs> 2020. It's very complex, very layered. And um, for all the saber rattling that goes on from both sides, whether it's um, Trump talk about bringing back manufacturing jobs that we couldn't, that wouldn't work here. Or, you know, China talking about this, it's like, okay, practically, there's just too much interconnectivity to, to, to be a full on decoupling. I don't think that's possible. Um, and I don't think um, China would even um, from their perspective uh, really even be interested in doing that unless they had some kind of full fledged support from the EU. And I, even then I don't know if they would, but that doesn't mm-hmm. seem likely right now. So I don't, I don't think China has the, the international support um, to really 
press issue in the U.S. I don't think really it's in their interest to do it either, um, despite the rhetoric, the rhetoric that comes from that comes from uh, Washington. So I am actually very optimistic about the long-term relationship between the U.S. and China. I am, um, as you mentioned, and I think a lot of Americans don't don't take this into consideration, the jobs that went to China are are kind of being phased out because China gladly cannot long they can't pay people for those jobs anymore so another developing emerging market yeah. those jobs will go there now are there labor issues and stuff like that that sure we can have those discussions but china's economy has evolved in a way that those jobs need to go somewhere else and that will hopefully help that next country um and so those jobs to come back to america just seems like it's a a very far stretch at least the way our current uh, economy and system works yeah. so no I, I i agree that it's very complicated and it wouldn't be the same and it's kind of a, a weird way to to even phrase it, but that's how it's being phrased, right? You read the term, you know, who can withstand the Cold War or China's yeah. in a better position and U.S. is in a better position. And it's like, I don't know about all that. That seems to be a little bit overstepping. Okay. Um, in your book, I will get to the easier questions now. Um, I do have one, <laughs> I do have one that, 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 that I, will, I will ask you to explain a little bit for, but I'll leave it for the last one. Um, it's about, you brought up Australia. I'll just touch on that in a second. Um, your book, I, I, now forgive me. I believe your book brought up the, um, the building and the, the the amount of buildings and the steel that they were building um, and the economic indicators related to that. Is that correct? Uh, certainly. I mean, I think it was a, a Bill Gates quote. I got a number from somewhere. It was, a, I think it was in from 2010 to 2013, China had laid more concrete or something than the United States in all the 20th century. It was, it was something Right. Is that the what you're yeah. thinking of? Yeah, and, and just kind of, just kind of, maybe just for people who haven't ever been to China or whatnot, kind of maybe put a perspective on. Um, we talk about China when I was there. Is just you know everywhere you go, there's these huge apartment complexes, there's huge uh, buildings. You're like, are, are are there really people in all all of these? Like, there's no one walking around sometimes, and sometimes there is. Um, maybe maybe kind of try to make uh, an analogy or comparison for people to really understand just how much um, China has poured into building just big buildings alone. Because when you talk about building um, projects that aren't necessarily necessary, that's kind of on some level what China has done in China. They've built some stuff that's not necessarily necessary. Yeah, absolutely. It, it is quite difficult to encapsulate the scale of, of what, they've done i mean I'm, i may have had an analogy in the in the book that you had in mind it's it, it's not coming it's not leaping to my mind um but for me and i think you did this on your trip it's for me that the best way to just kind of get a sense of the scale of, of what they've done is by traveling by rail around the country mm -hmm. because if even before you hit a new city or a large town out in the countryside you just start to see these new towers literally forests of apartment towers start to bring up in what would otherwise seem to be just agricultural fields. And as you move closer to the city, the density gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Mm. And the thing is that they always seem to be under construction. You know, mm. there's never, a, the construction never ceases. There's always something new being built. And of course, the question is how many of these are empty? Uh, you know, there's a lot of cases where, uh, that the apartments will be built, but nobody, sorry, will be bought, but nobody will be living in them, largely because um, traditionally the uh, investment of choice among Chinese savers has been in real estate. And there's a good reason for that. Since China liberalized its housing market in the late 90s, housing prices have only really done one thing. They've, they've just gone up and they've gone up in price very aggressively. 
Uh, and so there is this sense of, well, it, you know, it, an investment is, is a safe investment in an apartment, in property is as safe as houses. Um, and so you have this overbuilding and often you can sell all the apartments, but ultimately no one will move in. Now, China effectively has two real estate markets. You have the, the market in places like Shanghai and Beijing and Guangzhou, where property prices have been soaring and soaring, and there's just not enough quality education. Um, you know, people live on construction sites and people where, you know, still live in slums and people live in basements, windowless basements and, and electrical cupboards. Um, and then you have the overbuilding in the much smaller cities um, where it, the mind boggles. I, I don't think you will ever be able to move people, sufficient number of people into these apartments because these towns just don't have the economic incentives. They don't have the jobs. They don't have the economic activity. That is kind of a, a prerequisite to create the population density that you would need to fill all the housing that's been built. And the thing is, this dynamic never really seems to end. I mean, I stopped reporting, I left China in 2015, but I still talk to journalists who uh, tell me exactly the same story. I just went out to this development, it's almost finished, it's completely empty, I don't understand what's going on. And so it, it is just, it, it just doesn't end. I mean, the economic incentives at a local level are such that economic growth comes first, and the easiest way to do that is to borrow, you know, is to borrow some money and have a property developer build something. And so the the, the dynamic that just doesn't change. Um, and ultimately, one day, it's all going to have to come home to roost because the local governments that are driving this are going to run out of money to to, to repay the debts. You know, the developers, you know, won't be able to sell everything they build. Um, you know, the local governments, which make a lot of their money to repay their debts by selling land, well, you know, the, there just won't be the demand for the land that there used to be and, and the whole thing will, will sort of, you know, uh, will become less and less sustainable. But um, it's it's happening to a certain degree at the moment, but it, yeah, in some ways it's a, it, it's, it seems to be a perpetual motion machine. It just keeps on keeping on. Okay. Um best you can this is a this is a it's a trick it's a kind of a tricky worded question but it's not trying to trick you but um more real let's say yes or no it seems like the u.s the biggest problem it faces right now obviously um you know we have printed a bunch of money we've had our economy shut down but we have a lot of internal uh in, in interfighting you know we're fighting in the streets or protesting or um you know a presidential election coming up it seems like we have a lot of issues um that are very much domestically um, based and, and that would be the as it seems today, the biggest threat to the to the U.S. is itself. Um, uh, you know, you don't, you know, we're not. It's not gonna, foreign invaders going to come take us down. Um, with China, it feels like China's biggest problem, on some level, is, is China too, because you know they don't they don't necessarily have the best best reputation globally. Um, would you agree? I mean, what would your assessment be? Because just for uh, listeners, is, is that kind of a, a a simple way to think of it that maybe the U.S. Um, we're a democracy, but a lot of our issues are really internally. Um, China's issues are um, going to be external because, but, but they're really faced internal. So, whereas the U.S. obviously has built up a lot of goodwill internationally, um, you know, we, we've got a, you know, we've fought wars, been in allies, all this stuff. China doesn't have that in, um, externally. So, when you go out to, you, when you talk about maybe the EU's interest in, you know, partnering with China over the U.S. or whatnot, um, it feels like China's 
um, how they've handled things internationally over the past you know, uh, 10, 20, 30 years, does it really have them the good, the, the, um, the, um, uh, the credit in the bank, if you will, whereas the U.S. kind of has those credits, our problems are that we just can't get along inside the, inside the borders, whereas Chinese generally seem to get along inside the borders, uh, but how they've handled things is kind of give them a black eye internationally. Would you, would you agree with that, disagree with that? Um, uh, yeah, I, I do agree that, yeah, that uh, certainly China internationally at the moment uh, is, is, is sort of facing a degree of international backlash that I don't think it anticipated and certainly hasn't had to deal with in a very, very long time. But I wouldn't necessarily say that's the biggest problem. I actually think the biggest problem that China, biggest problems that China faces uh, mainly internally generated. I think it's things like the structure of its uh, economy. Um, I don't think it's going to have a financial crisis tomorrow, largely because it, it has this sort of commitment to ensure financial stability at all costs. The central bank is willing to do effectively whatever it, whatever it takes. Um, and on top of that, because the system works differently and the government can exert a, a degree of control over the banking system, um, certainly in a way that it does far more strictly today than it did during the Wild West days of shadow banking, that it has a degree of control to ensure that to sort of ward off the potential of a crisis. But I think the bigger problem here is uh, how do they maintain growth? Mm. Because I think its problems domestically aren't political in the sense that, you know, in the United States, you're right, it's, a, it's an internal problem, it's a political problem, because in the US, everyone, you know, what institutions are left that really anyone has any faith in, right? right? That's not the problem in China, because the central government controls the, the channels for public discourse to an extent that you can't have that same debate in China. If anything, what we've seen over the last 10 years, um, well, let's say the last five years, is that the governments just keep tightening, tightening, tightening the channels of free, ex free expression and, and, and communication, such that the government controls the public messaging on, on perhaps every issue far tighter than it did even a few years ago. So that's one side. But then you kind of have these unavoidable... Um, economic social problems that are coming down the turnpike that it just it doesn't have a solution for so you have things like you know the rapidly aging population mm. um, which is going to have an impact on china society in in ways that it's i mean it still hasn't worked out and, and we're not quite sure what it's going to look like um, you know this is a direct fallout of the one china uh, the one child policy that you know, China just has a it, its workforce is about to start shrinking. In fact, I think it might already have started shrinking, and the proportion of the population which has entered retirement is just growing by leaps and bounds every year. And that's like, okay, so you have a smaller workforce, you have a greater share of the workforce has to be dedicated to elder care. Uh, you've got to, I mean, we worry in the United States about pensions being an unfunded liability. Mm. I mean, China has that same problem, but just it's an order of magnitude worse. So you have that issue. Then you have the issue of China is no longer a cheap place to manufacture anymore. So China is trying to force the economy up the value added chain, which is then becoming harder. And this speaks a little bit to what you were saying about, you know, how China is perceived overseas. 
because one of the ways to march itself up the value added chain is to acquire technology from overseas, to encourage uh, foreign direct investment of high technology industries. And of course, it is for other countries to buy China's more technologically advanced equipment, such as from producers like Huawei and, and ZTE. And that's becoming more difficult and that's starting to undermine part of China's solution to no longer being a, a cheap manner, you know, source of, of manu, you know, manufacturing, you know, uh, you know, anymore. And then, of course, overlying all of this is the debt problem. Now, China has engaged in what they have called a deleveraging de campaign since the end of 2016. I handed in my manuscript for the book in mid 2017, and even by that point, it wasn't really clear that this deleveraging campaign was really anything. Um, that probably changed by early 2018. What China has done under this deleveraging campaign is really rein in the risks in the financial system. Now, what, what you've got to keep in mind is what they've been doing isn't actually deleveraging. Um, debt, on a macro level, debt levels continue to increase reasonably aggressively just at a slower pace as they previously did. But the real significance of the deleveraging campaign is that it's been a de-risking campaign. They've done things like rein in the growth of shadow banking, right? They've contracted yeah. shadow banking. Mm -hmm. They've reduced the amount of interbank lending between banks and other financial institutions, which was kind of the, the core problem, the core catalyst for the, the Lehman, Lehman Brothers uh, crisis and collapse. You know, China was heading in a similar sort of direction, but they've, they've sort of cleaned up that sort of risk. Um, you know, they've forced the banks to better comply with regulations. They've gone after, they've, they've you know, gone after corrupt officials. Um, they have pushed the banks to recapitalize and push them to more aggressively dispose of the non-performing loans. Now, this is all great because it's made the financial system safer. But as I said before, the way the economy works still requires debt levels to increase. And overall debt levels relative to the size of the economy are still increasing at a fairly um, rapid clip. What this de-risking campaign has effectively allowed China's debt levels to increase more safely and therefore, therefore to be able to increase uh, for a longer period of time than would otherwise have been possible. But we're still left with this underlying problem that China's growth is driven by the accumulation of debt at a faster pace than at which the economy is expanding. And that is just unsustainable. And it's a question of just how long China can sustain it. So these are kind of the, the, the big problems. You've got China's not cheap anymore, and it's trying to find a way to, to manufacture its way up the supply chain. You've got this demographic cliff, which they don't have a good solution for. And then they have this underlying problem where the economy is fundamentally dependent on the rapid acceleration of debt to grow. And they've made it, that system more sustainable because the financial system is less risky, but they still haven't found a way to wean themselves of this over-reliance on debt. And so China's, that's why I see China's problems as still being internal, but they're internal in a very different way than they are in the United States because there just isn't the potential for the Chinese people to debate their problems. These are more structural problems that are in some ways the result of past policy decisions. And now we're kind of at a moment where China has to pay the piper and the solution isn't immediately obvious. Oh, it's all fantastic. And just, you, you said this early on, it, um, you know, 
um, I can't remember exactly how you phrase it, but it kind of, you said something to the effect of it kind of depends on how you focus it or how you perceive it. And one of the things that I've, when you're talking geopolitical stuff, whether it's China or not, is that there's, there's so many moving parts and, um, you know, uh, how you, how you perceive each of those parts and what you think it's going to be and what, how you project it really can give you a lot of different projections on where you think things might head. Um, and for me, just as an aside, I've kind of given up. Uh, I, I loved your book because of all the stuff you talk about the, the money and the banking problems. As I said, to begin with, I've kind of given up with the, what's going to happen at the federal uh, monetary system level. Cause they just don't play by the same rules with me. So I'm going to go, they should all be broke. Like, how is this happening? So I've just kind of given up. I, I agree. Like you're saying that I'm like, preach on brother, preach on. And I'm like, wait, there's going to more money. Never mind. So <laughs> that's the hard part for me to focus on, on that being a downfall for the U S or China or anywhere. It's like, wait, I don't, so, uh, but it, uh, no, very, very, uh, I, I love that. that. That was wonderful. Um, I do want to ask you real quick. Um, um, one thing I said, I was going to ask you in the, in, uh, is that, um, anything in the book that you wish you would have added, uh, obviously, you know, not, not stuff that's come up afterwards that you know now, but stuff that you could look back, Oh man, I wish I put that in there or something you put in there. You go, you know what, uh, if a reader go read this, Hey, I, I should have said this a little better or nuanced this a little bit more. No, actually. I mean, it, the, the only thing what I'd say is one thing I didn't rec- one thing that I didn't recognize that I was doing, as it turns out, I was writing a book about a very discreet period in Chinese history, which was really, you know, what the sort of the, the sort of the, the problems that are arise between the global financial crisis in 2016. And what I didn't realize what was happening in 2016 was the deleveraging campaign. And, you know, I was writing things in the book where I'm like, you know, the Chinese government has lost control over the financial system. If things continue the way they are, it can only end in tears. And what I hadn't properly realized was happening, even as I was sort of, you know, putting the finishing touches on the manuscript, is that the Chinese system, political system, is capable of changing very, very quickly in ways that I'd never experienced in my own you know, time as a China watcher. And this comes back to Xi Jinping, his anti-corruption campaign and his ability in 2017, really, to kind of take that authority and then translate it into him you know, imposing his iron will on the economy and more specifically on the financial system. I just did not see that coming. And I was writing the book on the expectation that some of these trends of mounting financial risk were just going to consolidate and get worse. And it would just be more and more of the same all the way to the horizon. When what actually happened was that Xi Jinping turned it all around, cracked heads. And although the, the, the underlying problems in this economy still exist, that sort of unrelenting, unmitigating accumulation of risk in the financial system, that, that's, that stopped. Um, it's, still, it's still risky and they're still trying to clean it up and they're still dealing with the fallout from that period. But what I, I just didn't see coming was uh, that things weren't going to get progressively worse on that, case, on that front. Okay. I know we're up at six o'clock, so just uh, direct us somewhere on this. Um, I've, I've tried to look into, uh, if you kind of follow what happened with Australia and China, just, I think you can correct me if I get the, the highlights wrong here, but essentially 
Um, Australia agreed with the U.S. and other nations that there needed to be an investigation into the coronavirus, although they made it very clear that they did not think it was, you know, some toxic weapon that was released. They just, they just said, hey, yeah, we, we kind of want to see what's going on here. Uh, China was upset, um, and then they took their barley um, instead of Australia, they're about the U.S. Uh, I kind of dug into that a little bit, and it, it seemed that there's obviously, I don't follow Australian politics that much. No, no, this is can't, can't, can't get it all, I suppose. But there was an article that kind of outlaid uh, some of the anti-dumping from both sides. And it seems like um, um, that there's maybe a, a lot of history there with kind of the, the trade between Australia and China. Is there any good resource that you could point people to? Um, because your, your nuance of the position earlier, I, did, I just wanted to, to kind of give people, if they want to go explore that a little bit more, um, where could they go follow? Is there, is there a book or a newspaper or something that would be a good resource to go to? Oh, uh, Ryan, I'm, I'm afraid I'm not actually like the nuances of China's uh, and Australia's trade relationship at the moment. I'm not up on it as much as I, I would actually like to be. So I, I, I can't actually point you in the right direction. Um, in some ways, the thing at the moment, is this is a fast evolving sort of conflict uh, as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, you know, it, it, I'm, I'm sure there is stuff you could find on kind of like you know the, the history of of, of of trade disputes between the, the two countries, but I don't necessarily think that would even capture the full extent of, yeah. of what's going on at the moment, because there's other aspects to this as well. I mean, China just uh, announced that it was going to execute a an Australian citizen who they convicted of of uh, drug smuggling, I think it was. Mm. Um, you know. And China does that. It has a death penalty. But the timing all of these things when it comes to the Chinese always has invariably has a political angle. You know, you have Australia having run freedom of navigation um, missions through the South China Sea. I think it's only Australia and, and the United States that have been doing that. When there was a standoff recently off the Malaysian coast when um, an American, I think it was a amphibious marine vessel, turned up to in a standoff against a Chinese uh, ocean survey vessel that was being escorted by a whole lot of Chinese Coast Guard vessels, an Australian frigate turned up as well. So there's a whole lot of moving parts to this at the moment. And really, as much as anything, it's, it's, it's because Australia over the last few years, when I first started learning Chinese, and when I first moved to China in, if we've got, not, got time. So when I moved to China in 2004, I spent a year studying at um, Johns Hopkins has got a campus in Nanjing um, for international students and Chinese students to kind of, you know, you know, Chinese students study American studies, international students study, do Chinese studies. And most of the international students there are American. And you know, there's a handful of people like myself from, from other places. And I would have said that when I moved to China at that point and did that program, in the Australian press, there was no such thing as a, a bad China story. You know, China <laughs> was unambiguously responsible for uh, so much of Australia's prosperity. We hadn't had a recession since the early 90s. Um, you know, China would effectively buy anything we'd dig out of the ground and was increasingly um, a source of tourists and, and students. I mean, China was, was a wonderful, wonderful thing. And I turned up to this program surrounded by American students and they'd had a very, they'd grown up on a very, very different diet of media reporting on China. I mean, the Times, the Journal, the Post, the way they wrote it, report about China, it's not just 
China is, it, it's not the story of like China's buying our stuff, aren't they a wonderful thing? It's China was taking our jobs. China's not ad- adhering to our to WTO rules. Um, mm. China is manipulating its currency. China is abusing human rights. And we didn't really have that so much in Australia. Mm. And I think in recent years that has changed radically um, in Australia as we are seeing that uh, we are kind of at the forefront of dealing with an increasingly uh, assertive China that sees us as a small nation that has benefited hugely from China's economic growth and they feel as though we should be falling in line with them whereas the reality is we are a you know, a, a democracy with a long history of freedom and, you know, we don't like anybody telling us what to do and we're still, we're trying to work out at the moment exactly where our place is in this world between a increasingly assertive China and an increasingly erratic America. Yeah. So a couple of things, just to recap for the listeners. Um, one, we will link to your website, uh, DiddyMcMahon.com in uh, the, the newsletter, the show notes, so you can get it there. Um, the book, as we said, is, uh, is fantastic. You know, go, going through this conversation with you, I, I was like, ah, you know, they say you only remember like 10% of the book. Like, I gotta go back and read. I'm, I've been pulling like Kindle trying to find <laughs> some stuff or talk like, oh, you talking about that? And it's like, oh. And the final thing I'll say is that, that you know, um, this platform, the, the podcast, as we, we told our, 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 our subscribers, is that this is just to, you know, to, to learn and to, to get perspective. But just talking through this with you is a good reminder of just how, how um, it's almost difficult to sometimes talk about these issues because you're coming at it from a very, a very, um, you know, financial markets and you've studied that and you, you, you know, that's, a, that's kind of really, I don't want, I don't want to speak for you, but it sounds like it's really kind of pushing the, the, the way that you're seeing this thing and, and there's nothing wrong with that at all. It's like, okay, so what I'm thinking is like, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta incorporate more of that. I'm not incorporating nearly enough of what he's incorporating into how I'm thinking about it. And so um, <laughs> it, it just goes to, I think, I think that for me, the frustrating thing is we talk about us or China, whatever the issue is, is that we try to flatten it out and I'm guilty of this as well, but we, the media at large tries to just flatten it out. It's a very simple cut and dry issue. When you try to have these conversations, it's, um, it's a little bit more new. It's a lot more nuanced, and a little bit tougher just to even kind of have a conversation because you're trying to like, okay, wait, hold on. I didn't mean that. I meant that. Oh, yep. And so, um, so it's, it's always a good reminder to hear just how difficult the problems are <laughs> that we're trying to discuss. Yeah. And so uh, I appreciate your time and your, and your candor and, um, and love the book. And I, I, as I said, I'm, I'm going to go back through and, and uh, and I re- uh, listen to it again on on Audible, and we encourage all the listeners to get it. And uh, listeners, uh, thank you so much, Denny. Thank you so much for coming on. And um, uh, where where else can people find you? Uh, website, kind of the main plot spot, or is that anywhere else? Yeah, no, they're the they're, they're the the two best the best best. Well, that is the best thing, just the website. Um, and as we always say, when you're talking about buying a book, um, my advice is this book is on um, Kindle. It's on, uh, I guess, either hardback or paperback, maybe both, and it's on Audible. Um, it's best, in my opinion, and you're the, you're, the, you're, the, you're the expert here, it's best, in my opinion, to have all three, right? Because you might be in a spot where you can't <laughs> read, you need to listen. You might be on the beach, you don't want to get, you know, get sand on your Kindle, so you have a hard copy. Or you might be somewhere where the Kindle's the only spot, right? So you need to go ahead and buy all three is kind of my, my thoughts on that, right? Oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah, you know, or just buy buy three versions of the same of, of the same format. That's that's fine with me as well. <laughs> okay, wonderful. <laughs> Listeners, thank you so much and we will be back tomorrow. 